Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds Warren. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. Excited for an unthli- another monthly podcast summit, even though we only have two games to go off of. Yeah, and these two games were certainly two games that happened. Um, they were exciting. There was a. There, it was very fun to watch. I will say that. Um, so I enjoyed that. But overall, uh, some wonkiness in these games, and uh, not a whole lot of defense. So a lot to dive into with that. Um, I, I guess first thing I'll ask you. Right off the bat, before we dive into this, because this is two questions to uh, um, did you read Tyrese Halliburton's Player Tribune article? I did. It was amazing, wasn't it? I that uh, moved me very heavily today. Yeah, I mean, it definitely shows the human element that it's not just people getting traded on spreadsheets and you know that are not just cal- salary cap figure numbers when they get moved from one city to the next. So I thought it was very good that he showed um, what exactly he was going through whenever he got those calls. Yeah, no, definitely. So this is a two questions to I episode for people who have not listened to it before. Caitlin, can you uh, can you give some people background on that? Right. So on the third Tuesday ever every, every month, Mark and I get together and record two questions to Ha, which is in reference to Reb Porter's classic call as former PA announcer at the end of games when he would say two minutes to Ha. So today, I guess we can be two games to Ha because that's all we have to go off of since the entire roster is brand new. But we're just going to ask each other two questions and it's just basically a brainstorming um, session. I, I reached out to Twitter and there's probably about 40 people that responded with questions. So I'm going to try to synthesize that to a certain extent and come up with my two. Well, awesome. Uh, who do you want to get started? Do you want to get started? Or do you want me to get started? Um, I can. I Mostly okay. what people wanted to know on Twitter was about three or four of the same things, which I get where they're coming from. Um, I've basically molded this into the following. Um, the team has played multiple centers over both of these last two games. Do you think that the coaching staff is being experimental with lineups or tailoring rotations based on what's going on in the games? And then just like your overall thought on the plethora of various front court combinations that we've seen against Cleveland and Minnesota. Yeah. Um, I mean, we talked about this on the last pod. Uh, it almost feels like, well, not even almost like that there are more bigs on the roster than there were prior to uh prior to the trade uh, trades, I should say. And it's just already weird. Like one of the questions I wanted to ask you that I think can morph right into this is, I mean, Jalen Smith played most of his time at the four, especially in the first game. He played a little bit more of the five um, in the Wolves game. But I mean, we talked very handily before uh, in that, in that post deadline pod about how we think he's, you know, pretty, pretty squarely at five right now. Um, and you already saw some wonkiness with that. I mean, Tristan Thompson played 30 minutes in, across these two games, which was not something we expected or, or really wanted to see either because we just figured, you know, what is the, with the direction of this team, not not to be unfair to Tristan, but just direction of the team, you know, we figured it, it would make more sense for him to, to probably get bought out. And it seems like that's still potentially on the horizon, but who knows? 
I mean, even there were moments where Terry, Terry Taylor is playing the five and Jalen Smith is playing the four. And I know there are like more things that go into it than just, you know, the, uh, how, how things look, but even like, I mean, offensively, you're seeing Jalen just get space to the corner and having Terry be used more as a role man. And, um, there's, there's already some wonkiness in it that I'm not entirely sure how to feel about, uh, adding into like Goga just continues to be really rough. I think he had a few bright spots. Like he had, a. He had some good moments of verticality in the Wolves game. Defensively, I thought he was a mess in the Cavs game. Um, I mean, not that he was particularly awesome in the Wolves game either, but at least more in terms of rim protection, I thought he looked a little bit better. Um, And then offensively, it's just – I mean, I I do think there were some things that we'll dive into that that looked a lot better offensively, but there was some some spacing stuff going on where I was like, what is happening here? It felt like – you know, half the bigs were having to be directed to where they needed to be on defense. And I mean, that's what contributes to a, let me check my notes, 124.5 defensive rating over the last two games, um, which sounded that honestly, I thought that it, it's better than I expected um, in looking at it. Yeah. I mean, we can get into that too. I mean, I would just look at, I mean, I think you kind of nailed it. Cause we talked about Jalen being at the four or the five, on the last pod and us kind of both seeing him as more of a five. And I looked before this and what I had calculated using PVP stats was that he's been at the four with one of Goga, Ijax or Tristan Thompson on the floor um, for 21 minutes. And he's been at the five for 23. But as you say, I didn't factor Terry Taylor in, which Terry Taylor was at the, at the five and some of the minutes that he was out there. So it probably would be, slightly more minutes for him at the four than at the five. And what was interesting is if we just start out looking at the Cleveland game, like they are rotating through a lot of combinations quickly. So like O'Shea and Goga started, then Ajax came in for Goga, then Jalen came in for O'Shea. So already we're at O'Shea, Goga, O'Shea, Ajax, Jalen, Ajax. Then it was O'Shea, Jalen. Then by the second half, they went through that pattern again to start the second half, but then ended up working in Tristan Thompson. So then it was O'Shea, Thompson. Jalen Thompson and then by the end of the game like the last minute or so they they close with just O'Shea and Jalen um, to answer the one person's question who did uh, want to know do you do I think it's because they're being more experimental or tailoring the rotations I think it's a little bit of both I think they want to see what Jalen can do at both of those spots um, see where Terry Taylor might be able to fit in when he came back against Minnesota but I also think it was just part of what was happening in that game against Cleveland I mean, Goga, as you said, had some very rough minutes in the first half against Cleveland and going on to offensively, too. I mean, he continues to do the bad habit, which is take the ball way below his knees before he goes up and got stripped a couple times, in addition to some of the stuff that was going on defensively that was overall rough. So I think by the second half, they were just looking at as, you know, Ijax had hurt his ankle or tweaked his ankle. Goga was having a very rough game. Terry Taylor was out sick for that game. So... Tristan Thompson got some minutes, which, I mean, you and I had both pushed back on because it was basically, I think we were both coming from the place of, you know, what is the back end of the season for? And they already have so many guys who are the young prospects who needs to get minutes that fit in at the four or the five, which we haven't even completely seen this log jam yet because Miles Turner isn't healthy yet and neither is TJ Warren. And we don't know exactly where the two of them, like, obviously we know Miles Turner is the starting center, but I don't entirely know what they're going to do with TJ Warren when he comes back and what position they see him at. So um, what was curious though, that I was going to say about Jalen is, is during the minutes when he was out there with Isaiah Jackson, 
he was spreading, like you said. Like, if they ran Horn's twist, he was the first screener, and then he was rolling off of that and going off the exit screen to the corner, whereas Ijax, similar to what Terry Taylor was doing against Minnesota, was more being used as the second screener who was going to be involved in roll man action. But when the Cavs were matching up, they were putting, you know, if it was Mobley and Kevin Love out there, they were putting Mobley on Jalen. Or if it was Love and Jared Allen, they were putting Jared Allen on Jalen, which was very beneficial for Isaiah Jackson because then he was just punishing Kevin Love in the role with lobs and other stuff because he wasn't going to be able to keep up. Um, They did eventually kind of flip-flop that matchup, and then they put Kevin Love onto Jalen, and then that was kind of where some of the stuff that we brought up on the last podcast, I felt at least, showed up where, you know, you might have in the – they had just a regular horn set, not horns twist, and I noticed on the one play that Halliburton waved off um, Jalen because he wanted to get Kevin Love involved in the screening action with Ijax, and then when they had to pass out of that, Jalen's having to do something in a face-up situation out of the pop, and a couple times when he needed to do something – Um, facing the basket off the dribble he either traveled or lost the ball or you know something along those lines which to his credit he did hit two threes in that game he hit another three against Minnesota I think he was one of four against Minnesota so he did make some shots spacing out but what you would have noticed is and again credit to Isaiah Jackson is that Mobley and Allen were coming all the way off of Jalen in the corner and then that's whenever Isaiah had like that one really nice lefty finish around them at the basket but he was seeing a whole nother defender when Jalen was spaced out. So I still think in the long run that he shakes out as a five. I mean, I'm fully open. I mean, that's what this season is for. If they want to try to get him minutes at the four, especially right now when TJ Warren isn't even healthy and they have a lot of guys out. I mean, I suppose you can, but I think that that's, I liked him in the two man game when he, when it was empty side pick and rolls, whether it was Lance running it or it was Jalen running it. I liked those looks. And it doesn't mean that he's at the five that he can't ever step out to to space to three. It's just that like in the Minnesota game too, whenever they started O'Shea at the three after halftime, because Chris Duarte was out and then it was O'Shea, Jalen and Goga. I thought it showed up a little bit when Jalen was having to defend at the perimeter that you don't really want him having to defend threes, which brings up a whole nother thing about the defense, but we might get to that a little bit later. I think in generally speaking, I'm sure that there was a lot of pushback to the Tristan Thompson thing, which I was even harsh with it in the last pod. I think I get where they were coming from in the Cleveland game. The Minnesota one was a little bit tougher to figure because Terry Taylor was available as an extra body, but um, right now they don't have miles and they don't have Isaiah Jackson. So I guess you kind of grin and bear it. But if when those guys are healthy, if he was still getting any minutes, I would, seriously question it yeah um i'm right there with you let's you know going and talking about Jalen a little bit for a second uh i thought you brought up a great point he had um he had some moments that looked really interesting like i was uh impressed with him as a shooter like i think he looked pretty good uh in terms of just preparation off the ball like you mentioned um he was ready to shoot it like he wasn't really hesitant at all which i thought was important that was something we talked about in the last pod but like you mentioned too, he showed a lot in the role game that is interesting, but the putting the two things together is going to be a work in progress. And that's something I saw in, in Phoenix too, from him playing like he had, a, and this is not to be like slanderous, but he had a, he had a play coming off out of the corner. He caught and drove um, his defender shaded him towards the rim. And um, he came up on the other side and threw a ball off the backboard that was supposed to go to the slot. Like that. I mean, that's just part of where he's at right now. Like his, 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 
passing skills are are not quite there. So like that's that's kind of what makes it more of a work in progress. Because like you're mentioning, I mean, teams a they're going to keep sagging off of him until he continues to hit it like at an above league average rate. And even then, like we've seen with Miles, um, it's taken Miles being like a it's still like a relatively hesitant shooter at points, but like having to shoot like five or six a game and shoot well for defenses to care. Um, and then you can worry about what's happening off the bounce more. And it's just exactly like, I think the numbers looked really great from him and I'm not trying to belittle what he did. Cause I thought, especially on the glass, like we can talk about that too. He was really good on the glass. Like his rebounding is, is fantastic. Um, but I, I'm right there with you in terms of his offense definitely has a long ways to come, especially if he's going to be playing more at the four. Yeah, and I think what's important to remember, too, is, is like, first of all, that first quarter against Cleveland was like an out-of-body experience. Like, <laughs> yeah. them, them dropping 47 points and shooting the ball that the way that they did, I don't think is fair to expect that to be replicable. But, and especially because I think he hit two of his threes in that span. And like you're saying, I thought he did a good job actually kind of manufacturing angle on the one and lifting up and, and looking comfortable shooting it. But yeah, I mean, the one time off the dribble, he did leave his feet under the basket. And I think that's when one of the turnovers came in addition to the the travel at the top of the key. But I mean, given that he didn't even show up, uh, I think what they was reported that he got up really early there in the AM morning on Friday, arriving to Indianapolis, probably didn't have that much time to even, I mean, I don't even think he went through walkthrough and then was there kind of doing stuff extra with assistant coaches to step in and actually produce. But I do think that what the Pacers are right now is a very difficult team, especially for the Cavs going into it all game planned for in the very least, like, you know, they, they traded, their team completely changed. I mean, it's hard for us to even go into this podcast off of only seeing two games, let alone if you're a coaching staff being like, Hey, what do we need to prepare for tonight when it's a completely different cast of players all into different roles. So I think that played into some of what the production we're seeing from players is as well, that the longer they're on the team and the more time that opponent opponents have to actually prepare for the guys who are in the lineup, we might see some, regression there as well in addition to what the first quarter was but yeah I mean I thought Jalen did a tremendous job on the glass in both games and given that he didn't have a lot of opportunity um, we'll see what he continues to do at both positions but I don't want people to put like unfair expectations on him either exactly that's what I'm coming at too because I think like we just want to be fair with him like he is not like 15 and 8 over two games is awesome but like I also think we just got to be realistic with him um are you ready for my question? Yeah, let's move on. Uh, I, I don't want to, I'm trying to think of how to word this properly. Cause I mean this in a very positive way. Do we need to reevaluate where we're at with O'Shea Brissett? Um, and maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Or like in terms of what he's going to look like in a new offense like this. Um, like I, I think I spent like most of the last four hours before we got got on here just watching the games and pulling. I think I pulled like thirty clips today of just what he was doing off the ball. Like we've, I mean, we've seen it with with Domas, but it just felt like with the pace they were playing at, and I don't even think the pace was that much higher than they've been at all season. It was like right around league average. Um, but I just like, I mean, I actually had a friend text me about this. A friend who's a scout, he's like, "Holy shit, O'Shea Brissett is like." just an incredibly smart off ball wing. And I was like, thank you. Like, I know he's been this guy, but like seeing him put it together, especially in the Minnesota game, it helped because Minnesota's defense was, was porous as all hell. Um, and has been for a while now, but, um, 
I, he just has been so good at filling into pockets. I mean, he averaged five offensive rebounds per game over the last two, was kind of everywhere, saw everything. Uh, his his awareness overall was just incredible. He did a really good job relocating. Like, I know, I, again, it's, it's the kind of thing where, like, yeah, 20 and 12 over the last two is not necessarily indicative of who he is. But um, I do think that sometimes we lose track, and I don't mean you and me, but just the fan base in general, we lose track of – this guy is 23 years old and he is one of the, the, the Pacers young players that I do think we need to be positive about moving forward. We can definitely quibble about what the ceiling is, but I do think he's showing some meaningful strides that are um, that I, I'm really just encouraged by. I mean, I think that that was what popped about him the most when yeah. last year, when he surged on the stretch is that he's very good, not only at cutting, but knowing how to not spoil the spacing when he does it and at cut assists where he's opening stuff for other people. That's, I think, one of the skills he's kind of always had. And I do think for him and Jalen, because Jalen did a pretty good job of this against Minnesota as well in, in terms of being opportunistic. I mean, we need to be honest about what you just said about Minnesota's defense. That I think that there is a draining effect for teams that play um, their big up at the level or above the level and then need to scramble and scramble to the next thing as the season progresses. I think you could see that somewhat when Denver kind of mostly did that with Jokic. They don't do it exclusively like they used to a few seasons ago that when you get to around the all-star break that teams would kind of wear out and then have to pick it back up again before they go to the playoffs I just think it's that type of system and what it requires of your background rotations can be draining and I think you could definitely see that from Minnesota I mean I thought that the coaching staff I'm guessing was probably instructing them as well but um, some of it might have just been O'Shea and Jalen self-starting that when the low man went over to meet the big on the roll they were automatically weak side cutting that so that it was making it more difficult. I mean, Anthony Edwards did a pretty poor job two or three times, but it was making it more difficult to X out because, you know, you're typically prepared for that first pass to go to a shooter. You take first pass and the other guy goes when Jalen or O'Shea were cutting behind that or crashing the offensive glass behind that, it was catching them by surprise a lot. So I thought that was a good point of emphasis, but also it was there because they were playing a blitzing scheme. Like this wasn't the case of like, you know, what the Pacers ended up doing to Karis LeVert at the end of the Cleveland game, where it's like, okay, we came out of our base scheme to go trap Karis LeVert. Like, this is what Minnesota does every game. It's just to the point where it's looking really broken for them over the last week or so. And they're also mis um, mixing in some switches now that I didn't understand why they were switching certain stuff in that game. So um, I give O'Shea and Jalen credit for doing it, but that that type of stuff isn't going to be there night in and night out. But O'Shea definitely was shooting the ball with a ton of confidence. I think it benefited him. That, that back three? Um, yeah. Well, yeah, that, looking up that stat, he made he made two step back threes in this game and the over these two games. Do you know how many he's made for the season and how many he's attempted for the season? Uh, is it one and like four? Yeah, he's three of six for the season with two yeah. of the makes coming over these last two. The last step back three he made was in the win over Miami. So the third game of the season. So, I mean, some <laughs> oh, of that's wow. just like, you know, maybe like a trade happening. The whole team like, gets yeah. a new energy to an extent and it's fresh and it's new. Plus, like he hasn't really gotten opportunities to start like what was the case for him last year. I think he's only started three games. And even with Miles and Sabonis missing plenty of time over the last month or so, whether because of COVID or the stress reaction or Sabonis's ankle injury, like it was Tori getting that nod at starting four. It really wasn't O'Shea. So 
I'm sure there was some degree of, you know, just energy from that. But I did think that Tyrese did a good job of making an extra pass to him in the corner a couple times. And he's still having trouble finishing at the rim when people come to yeah. him. I mean, that was still an issue in both games where he is still a very aggressive driver. And to his credit, he did get to the line a couple times, but the finishing isn't quite there. And then defensively, I mean, the whole team did because of, you know, what we've pointed out, they really just don't have any wing defenders, but I thought it was a little bit dicey when they tried to move him to the three after halftime against Minnesota. I mean, everything was dicey against Anthony Edwards. Everything they tried was not particularly effective, but he got dusted a few times there. And then, you know, the interior defense against Cleveland's bigs was a little bit of a struggle as well a couple of times, but I did think they did a pretty good job trying to double and scramble out of it. But I mean, I've always been in support of what O'Shea's done developmentally. Um, I think that the last two games were somewhat a product of, you know, just credit to him for shooting the ball better and for just having more of perhaps a platform to get to do the the good things that he already does, like more of a spotlight being on them because other people have been traded and moved. And I think, you know, people want to talk about what's different about the team. Cause like, I will ask you this, just branching off of this. Did you think the offense was a lot different over these two games than what it's been? No, not really. Um, the only thing that felt different, it did feel like they were willing to push the pace more, even if it didn't, I mean, uh, push and transition more off of makes, even if that's not like, not to say that it's super different, um, but it is like, I mean, I feel like part of that was more just because that's what Tyrese is coming from, from the, you know, from Sacramento. You could feel the, the pace kind of go down a little bit when he came out of the game too. Um, but that was really the only thing that stood out a ton to me. I thought the two games were pretty similar to what they were doing at the beginning of the yeah. season. It was basically draining the stuff that they were allowing Sabonis to do. The bigs weren't doing near as much as that of that stuff, and I don't expect that they will over the rest of the season and putting the ball back into Halliburton's hands to the extent that Brogdon had it. Like Just looking at the numbers, I wanted to see – over these two games, which Halliburton's played 40 minutes, which we can get into that too, that he's averaged 40 minutes in two games. He has a hundred, he's averaging 106 touches and over eight minutes of time of possession. So Brogdon for the season, which did see some regression, but early on he was in the nineties as at 82.4 touches and six minutes time of possession. So that's like, you know, everything basically flowing through Tyrese Halliburton, which, I mean, you could see, all the many good things he did. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about him more, but um, just just the way that he sees the floor in general, what he's opening up because of his ability to pull up against switches and and uh, at various different types of coverages where he created space for himself with his footwork that's fantastic against out on the perimeter, but also just his ability to see the next thing um, when he was making passes. Like we've talked about it too, that like an assist isn't necessarily a measure of somebody being a great passer, you could get a lot of assists in a game. If your team's shooting the ball hot and you just swing the ball and they make a shot, but he was doing more than that. I mean, there was times where he was using eye manipulation or he knew like, if I go drive here, I'm going to draw the defense this way. And then that thing's going to open up in ways that we really haven't seen from the other Pacers guards. And that's not me trying to degrade them. It's just the reality of what it is. But you say that about the pace. I, I noticed that too. I felt like they were looking for kick aheads probably more than what we've seen this season, but like in the first quarter of both games, they're at 110 pace. The second quarter, they're at 105 pace. The third quarter, they're at a 96 pace. And in the fourth quarter, they were at an 88 pace. Like, I feel like if they're going to want to be playing faster, 
that the minutes load that they're expecting from Tyrese and Buddy and O'Shea in particular, which I get why they were relying on them, because like we said, there's basically no other wings right now other than O'Shea and Buddy. But if you're going to be wanting to play that fast, I don't think it's really sustainable. That's like kind of what Bjorken was trying when they'd want to play up tempo and then they'd play Brogdon and Sabonis like 40 minutes a game and wonder why they ran out of gas in the fourth quarter, which that's not explaining all of it because Cleveland made some very clear defensive adjustments that slowed down their um, hot offensive stretch. But I think I'm with you. I think overall the offense just looked more similar to what they were doing at the beginning of the season and they went back to it. It was just in the hands of Tyrese Halliburton, whether rather than Brogdon's. Definitely. Um, All right. What is your next question? Let's see. I mean, we can go a lot of ways with this because um, a lot of people wanted to know stuff. I mean, and I don't want this to sound like a soapbox, but a lot of people wanted to know like what bigs fit the system or power rank these players. Like I just want to say right now, I don't have interest in round two of, what Turner and Sabonis has been only with miles and Isaiah Jackson. Like I want to talk about both of them as individual players, but I don't have a lot of interest in turning that into like contentious. And I'm not saying that people wanted it to, it's just that I'm going to need a lot more games from Isaiah Jackson to even start kind of having those types of conversations. Not that I really want to have them. And we just haven't really seen enough for me to really um, touch my toe into that territory. So Um, But we can. Some people did want to know, how will you expect Miles's role to change based on what he was doing before when he was starting at the four versus um, now? Yeah. Or when he um, comes back and he's healthy, I should say. Good question. Um, I mean, what I think will change or what I want to see change if I want anything to see change. Either either way. Okay. Well, I guess I'll do both. Number one, uh, and I also have a question for, for, for you off of this as well, um, not to abuse my questioning power, but um, I, I, I just don't think it's going to be that different, for being honest. Like, I think it is clear that he's not going to be doing a lot of the trigger man things that uh, they, they had been doing with Domas, you know, towards the end of this year and just last year as well. And I think that's for the better. Like, I do think he can do some of those things, but for the most part, we just know, like he's a little bit better as a scoring outlet and, uh, and as a popper or just as a straight roller than trying to do both because it's just, he's not awesome at screening in general. And, you know, his, his, his ball skills aren't, I mean, he has ball skills obviously, but, you know, in terms of actually making the reads and doing the things, as somebody operating with the ball in their hands more. Um, so I think that's going to change. Um, but again, that's not all that different from what he's been doing. Maybe he'll get more solo role opportunities. Like, I guess that's something you could factor in. I do think I have, like, I don't know. We've heard, I, I'm not trying to just call out people in national media because I technically am national media because of how much I do other stuff outside of Indiana. That was not meant as a flex, but um, like, I keep hearing, well, you know, he's going to get to play the five more. And we've talked about this too. Like he still plays the five a lot. Like, it's not like he was ever not playing the five. Like he plays the four with Domas, which is like 40% of the minutes that they played. Um, But when he was playing the five, he's still rolling. Like he's still doing the things that I think are going to be expected of him moving forward. I, I guess you, the point you can make is that, okay, he'll be doing it all the time when he's in game instead of spacing out to the, to the, to the corner as much, but 
they're still going to want to mix it, mix it up and have him do that. Cause I mean, getting the most value out of miles is, is what he can do as a big shooter who can take guys off the dribble when things are really, really clicking. Um, so, I mean, maybe that opens up more avenues for, for us to get to see him as a short roller. Uh, Cause there have been some positive reps with that this year and we just haven't seen it quite as much, but Again, I think it's maybe just more reps of a lot of the same stuff that he's been doing. I think it will probably, exactly. I mean, we've already seen him every game do stuff at the five and what his role is whenever Sabonis isn't on the court. I mean, I'm with you. I don't think that we're going to start seeing Miles Turner run like, you know, Princeton stuff out of the elbow suddenly because Sabonis isn't there, that we're going to see him running that wing play where they would literally inbound the ball to Sabonis to bring it up and then, there'd be a back pick and then the guard would come and get the ball off a of DHO and then he'd go into Veer. They have other ways to get to Veer that they would run with Miles, so I would suspect that they'll keep those. I mean, that they ran when Miles was in solo five rather than, you know, because there were opportunities out of that set where Sabonis would hit guys um, sneaking back door out of that play or sometimes even throw that one really nifty bounce pass clear across court to the opposite corner. I don't really think they're going to put a lot of that in Miles's hands because if we're being honest, I'm thinking that Rick Carlisle's preference, preference is to run offense through the guards on the perimeter. Yep. Um, so I'm not really expecting a lot of that. I think that what might change is that, you know, when you have Tyrese Halliburton out there, which – I don't think that Minnesota was trapping him because he hit six threes. That was just a benefit of doing it. I think Minnesota was trapping him and being up at the level because that's what their defensive scheme is. But you could see right off the bat that that made the bigs have to do a little bit more. And to Goga's credit, he had that one um, really nice no-look pass in the four-on-three situation. And then he hit Jalen cutting once or twice, which again, some of that goes back to Minnesota's background rotations just being really bad. But um it's like what I wrote in the article. I think that there are teams that are going to play Tyrese differently than what we saw with Malcolm Brogdon and Karis LeVert. So in that way, Miles might be doing different things simply because he has a change changing in the guard. And also he might be doing different things just because the guard is most likely going to be better at getting him the ball than what was the case for most of the season. And again, it's not me trying to say like, I, I like Malcolm Brogdon as a player. He does a lot of really good things. He's valuable and that he can fit a lot of different styles that you want to play. He's just not the passer that what we've seen in these two games from Tyrese Halliburton and what I've seen from the stuff that I watched before I wrote the article on Tyrese coming out of Sacramento. So I do think that like in the minutes when they were both out there, I could see a situation where depending upon who, like if O'Shea does continue to start at the four, for example, that O'Shea will probably be the player. Like if they run horns twist, will come off the first screen and go space out of the exit. Whereas miles will be the roller um, playing with Tyrese in the middle of the court. So there probably will be some more role reps. Now, if he does play with Isaiah Jackson, I think, guessing that miles will be the spacer and, and Isaiah will be more involved in the action as a role threat, but um, I don't know what combinations they're going to use. So I think that the main difference for miles is just going to be what the change and what the spacing and what guard he's playing with. Um, Because I don't think they're going to ask him or expect him to do a lot more than what he was doing when, you know, even in the games when he wasn't at the five, or when Sabonis didn't play, like when he played Houston and he scored the 30 or whatever it was, like he wasn't doing a bunch as like an on-ball big or initiating offense. He was a play finisher. So 
I expect to see more of that, you know, maybe if they do get switches, I mean, this is kind of what I pointed out too, that because Tyrese and what he did against Minnesota, when they switched Naz Reed out to him and Carl Anthony Towns, which I found pretty questionable, what he can do out from the perimeter might lessen what you would need miles to be able to do against a switch from what they needed in certain circumstances over the early portion of the season. So I guess your idealistic view of it is that he will get to do more of the things that he's already shown that he can be good at without being expected to do things that Sabonis did. I, I, I think that's my short answer to it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think uh, my hope is that's the kind of stuff that he wants to do. Um, not to be unfair to Miles, but just like based on everything we'd heard from reporting, you know, him wanting a bigger role. I mean, as we've talked about, I feel like we've, we've had this conversation a million times, but it keeps coming up because we have to have it. Like, um, I mean, I want to see him. Okay. Can, can he lean into doing some movement shooting stuff? Can he come off pin downs in the corner? Like we've seen a little bit of it this year. I like, I mean, we've talked about it before. I want to see him take seven threes a game, like seven or eight threes a game, like just eschew the hesitancy, please. Like there are the moments when he does are beautiful. That's what I want. I think like, he's a guy, if he wants to average 20 points per game, which I don't think that's going to happen, but if he really wants to, I think that's coming through just maximizing himself as a play finisher. Like you're talking about, okay, can you improve on, if you're not being guarded in the corners, like one of the things that I really liked about O'Shea, and I think I'm going to point out in an article at some point, like if he's not being guarded in the corners and his man is already pre, pre-rotating over, okay, he's going to cut back door or find a way to come in and, and still impact the defense if he's not being guarded. Like, can Miles be that guy? I think that's the thing for me. Like, if he really wants to be that level of player, I think it's going to come through really forcing the defense to to pay attention to him 24 seven. And I think he's capable of doing it, but yeah, um, it's just seeing more of it. Well, cause I do think that's a good point. Like we talk a lot about, you know, what his shot volume is or other stuff like that. And it's like, okay, well, Jalen Smith came in and got shots in this offense at the four without being used as a screener that much and still managed to find shots. And again, some of that is the difference. I mean, like the one no look that that Tyrese had finding him cutting to the basket, that that's a difference in who's running the offense. But um, it's also just being opportunistic. And I felt like for the last couple of years, some of that's gotten lost, that it just becomes a critique of the coaching staff or who he's playing with rather than there have been spots where Um, He could have found his own usage and doesn't always readily go get it. Um, I will say like, we didn't really touch on it too much, but when I was talking about how the pace dropped off in the fourth quarter against Cleveland, JB Bickerstaff basically switched up their scheme going in. Like it was the last possession of the third quarter. And then the entire fourth quarter where they started having Evan Mobley and Jared Allen switch out onto Halliburton and onto the rest of the guards. And I felt like that completely was stifling and revealing in terms of what they might be able to do in an Eastern conference playoff setting, because just how dominant they were, the two of them only attempted three shots and that completely affected how the rest of that game went. Like with all due respect to Karis making some shots late, what they were doing defensively had more of an impact on how that game ended up going on because as good as Tyrese was at creating space against Naz Reed and Carlton Towns, that's a different, um, calculus when it's Jared Allen and Evan Mobley's length. And there was a few times where Evan Mobley closed out on him and he couldn't get shots off, had to pass out of them. And then it kind of shows like what we talked about on the prior pod in terms of like an improvement area for him and, and needing to maybe sacrifice some of the pristine efficiency at times for being able to get into the to the rim and draw contact. And in that particular matchup, I think that's in part why Rick Carlisle went to Tristan Thompson when he did, in addition to the stuff with, 
um, Ajax being hurt and Goga struggles because if they were going to be missing shots on the perimeter against those switches or missing other shots, I think that they were just thinking, Hey, we don't really have an interior option currently healthy to be doing anything against these switches on the inside. So Tristan Thompson can get offensive rebounds. So that's another thing that we can do that. If, if there is a small switched on him and Tyrese misses from the perimeter because they do a good job closing out, then maybe he can recycle that miss and do something impacting it that way. Um, so I don't want to say that there's not going to be any space for Miles to continue to hopefully grow his game against switches beyond what we've seen so far this year, because it has been a little bit strange because it's like what you're saying. Um, when I read that article, I was under the impression that what he wanted to do more of was like just to more regularly be involved in the action and be a screener. But then over like the last two weeks before he had the stress reaction, it was a lot of him trying to, you know, assert himself in the post and some weird spots at times, whether he had a switch or not. So, um, I don't think it will necessarily be as pivotal with Tyrese, but there's spots like in that matchup against Cleveland where you'd you'd want to see what he can do and, and hopefully be able to do something inside. But um, it doesn't seem to me that that's necessarily really high on Rick Carlisle's priority list. So I'm kind of with you, like him just being more opportunistic, but also I think he's just going to have overall more spacing around him and better playmaking to make his job probably easier in some circumstances whenever he is fully healthy. And just that aspect alone that, you know, we know that he was dealing with foot soreness before that guy diagnosed. I don't know how long the foot soreness was going on, but that might have been impacting what some of his production was. So um, hopefully this long rambling stuff made sense to anyone who wanted to know how Miles's role might change. But um, unless you have anything else to add to that, we can go to your next question. No, I think that made a ton of sense. Um, this is a little bit more minute, and I guess we can expand it to talking about his whole game, too. But um since we got to see 80 full minutes of Tyrese Halliburton, how did you feel about Tyrese Halliburton when he did not have the ball in his hands? I mean, that wasn't a lot of time, Mark. <laughs> yeah, there, there wasn't. I mean, like I said, 106 touches and over eight minutes of time of possession. There wasn't a lot of opportunity where he wasn't the one um, orchestrating most of what was going on on the floor. I mean, I think in part, some of what I was noticing when he was off the ball wasn't so much about him as in, and this again, isn't me trying to say things about Chris Duarte and obviously he jammed his toe. And I think for a few possessions after, before he came out and went straight to the locker room, that was impacting his play to an extent, but it was me more noticing some of Chris struggling a little bit as a playmaker in those two games as in secondary, but what were you going to stem off from that? What was your main take? Well, I, it's not even necessarily a take and it, like, I, it sounds unfair because we're talking about him having played 40 minutes per game, but uh, I didn't feel that he was uh, awesome relocating um, or just moving without the ball. Like not that he was terrible at it, but um, I do wonder what that's going to look like because more just thinking about, you know, maybe he never even plays a game with Malcolm Brogdon. I don't know. I'm not trying to surmise that. I, I'm, I imagine Malcolm's going to be back in, due time at some point but um i just am curious about that because especially right now like like we're talking about like buddy healed is much more of an operate off ball and come off screens and he certainly had some possessions where he uh, he held the ball but you know for the most part the ball was not coming back to anybody else after that um he actually did have a couple of nice pocket passes but um i mean same thing with chris to a degree like they're not they're just they were not initiating offense the same way that tyrese was so that is something that i am interested to see you know what what kind of player 
does he become, you know, if he's playing next to somebody else who can, who can start sets to the same degree he can. I mean, that's a good thing to bring up because that was a question that a lot of people wanted to know about how he would fit with Malcolm Brogdon if they come back. And I think what we can interpret from all these pressers, which is what I think both of us already assumed is that, and again, positional designations like this are somewhat outdated, but it sounds very much and I think naturally fits that he is going to be the team's franchise point guard, whether Malcolm Brogdon plays or not. And only Malcolm Brogdon knows how he feels about that. And I'm certainly not going to insinuate. We know from the past, like when he did come over from Milwaukee, it seemed like it mattered to him that he was going to have an opportunity to come to the Pacers and be able to run point. I think that there are times where he can run point. And I think that Malcolm Brogdon for the most part is when he's been healthy has been a very good player for the Pacers. He's just not, quite on the same level in terms of um, his overall feel and ability to make different types of reads out of the pick and roll in the same way that Tyrese can. So I think if they're both healthy, you're going to see Malcolm Brogdon more off the ball. I mean, even when Karras was healthy, it hasn't felt like in spite of the fact that there are a lot of areas where there's boomerang passes or there's, you know, pistol action between the two guards or the two guards screening for each other, that there's ever been like a super uh, even distribution of running the offense between the two guards who are out there. So I think it would more so be about what Malcolm's offering you and those specific circumstances, because like we said, um, they're going to need to scheme rim pressure in some way. And Malcolm right now is probably about their top option at doing that. So if he's playing off the ball and Tyrese is bending the defense, that gives you more options in terms of him being able to attack second side, more like what he did in Milwaukee, or maybe some of the stuff that Chris Duarte does coming off of, you know, secondary screens or motion strong, where then Malcolm could put the ball on the floor in those situations and still get to the basket and make a play. Um, I don't know what their long-term intentions are there with him or what their plans will be. I think that there might be some benefit in three guard lineups. If you have he out there, him out there with Halliburton and Duarte at the same time that Malcolm could guard the bigger wings. Cause somebody asked that question too, just about the defense in general. And, and re- in reality, if you look the roster up and down right now, Malcolm probably is their best option to guard threes. Like, and until TJ Warren is healthy, TJ Warren's probably the roster's best on ball defender. But um, aside from him, like Malcolm probably is the best wing defender. So I think that there's still stuff that he does that they need. It's just a matter of, you know, I don't, I don't even want to necessarily word it this way because you do what your team needs, but I don't know exactly how he's going to feel about it based on what things he said in the past. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's what I'm, not just say what I'm getting at. That sounds unfair, but I mean more just like that's what I'm interested to see when he does come back because um, I never felt super all like not that I thought he was bad playing off of uh, playing off of De'Aaron Fox in Sacramento, but like clearly like I mean I think if Sacramento had felt really good about what the two of them looked like together, maybe we're not having this conversation. But um, I am curious to see what that looks like for him and you know how he can develop playing alongside guys because I think you know we're not that I don't think he can be a guy you run a ton of offense through, but I do think like, you know, if he's going to maximize what he can be as a player, a lot of it's going to come through. Okay. If you bend a defense initially, and especially if he's the guy who's not going to necessarily always get to the rim or, or be somebody who's, um, you know, taking his shot at the rim, which I think even in those first two games, there were so many pass- shots that he, he passed up that I wanted to see go. Um, 
like, okay, well, can you get out of that initial action and then become a threat immediately off the ball? Because that makes you even harder to guard. Like it's getting like very deep and like probably, we, you know, it's, it's two games in. So I'm probably thinking a little bit too much on this one, but it was something that I did think about a lot. Well, yeah, because I, I noticed that too. What's funny is like, you can look at his line afterwards and be like, oh, wow, 22 points and 16 assists. Like 71 true shooting percentage. Yeah, too, that's, that's absolutely even. ridiculous. And he's doing this while playing 40 minutes. And then while I'm watching it back, I'm like, oh, he could have done that better. Or, oh, that's a spot where you want him to force the defense to commit. And he went with a jump pass or, you know, different spots. So that's what's really enticing about him is there's so many areas where you can still see improvement and he's still mm-hmm. producing to this level when he's only, you know, 21 years old. So yeah. um, he was definitely a positive takeaway, even though, I mean, I guess we're already through the two questions, but do you want to talk about this defense at all? Uh, I mean, I guess. Uh, what what do we even want to say about it? I mean, it's terrible. Um, like, it is not good. They can't get any kind of stop. Um the the zone looked really rough too um like so that's uh, interesting because i thought that was the only positive takeaway defensively well i mean i thought the zone lo- it, lo- it was better than playing straight man to man but it still looked bad um so maybe that was like the harsh, only time but... where i felt that gogo looked functional was when he was in the middle of the two three against minnesota but in yeah. part just because nasri didn't make great decisions but yeah um no, that's I mean that is a good point. I think those were the moments that I was thinking of when he had good verticality was when he was just standing right under the rim. Um, and I think that's part of what's difficult with Goga too. Like if you were just playing straight drop and he was, you know, like which you know, there's reasons why you can't always run it, but I think maybe he does look better in some ways defensively. But um, I mean, when they had there, there was a moment when Jalen uh they they trapped, I think during the Cleveland game, and Jalen came out to above the level of the trap. And I was like, Oh my God, this is bad. And I, I can't remember who ended up coming up and help, but there were like three guys within five feet of each other. And then the, it was just easy bucket for the Cavs. I think Mobley just came backside and, and dunked it. But um, yeah, I mean, half the guys on the team give like way too much ground. Like I felt like Anthony Edwards. Yeah. He took a lot of shots off the dribble, but they hardly felt contested at times. Um like we knew what it was with Buddy coming in, but how did you feel about the Buddy Hill defense experience? I mean, it was about what I expected of the Buddy yeah. Hill defense experience. But I mean, in a lot of ways, like I tweeted after that game was over that, you know, the Pacers had 22 rebounds on 57 missed shots, which I think said a lot about both of those teams because Minnesota has been so bad. I think they rank 30th in defensive rebounding rate and 30th in opponent offensive rebounding rate, which is somewhat, again, a product when you play that type of defense, it can make it a little bit harder when you're scrambling to that degree to box out and find those pockets, but also they just don't have a lot of great rebounders on the roster. But, um, and then that aspect along with Anthony Edwards going off for what he did, because I'm pretty sure that if I would have, you know, texted you before that game and said, how many points do you think Anthony Edwards will have today? You might not have guessed that he was going to be close to 40, but I don't know. You might've guessed that he would have been close to 40 because they just have absolutely no one that could have checked him in that matchup. But at the same time, it's like, why were you coming out of halftime and literally switching Jalen and Tristan Thompson out to him over and over again? Like the one play towards the back end of the fourth quarter, Tristan or Terry Taylor's guarding Anthony Edwards and 
uh, Tristan's guy goes up the screen and then they just switch Tristan out to the ball, which I know that Tristan used to do some of that when he was in Cleveland and was pretty decent at switching out. But, you know, that was a, a few years yeah, ago. He was and, not that guy yeah, anymore. Yeah. And it's like, you know, maybe sometimes you just want to live with those step backs. But after he had hit that mini on you, like, why are you continuing to do the switching? Um, I, I would have just been rather just play that straight up and just have Terry Taylor fight over the screen. Um, and that's kind of was an interesting aspect all on its lo- all on its own that Terry was logging minutes at the five when you are as thin as you are at the forward spots yeah. currently. Like I probably would have liked to see him get a few more minutes, which they did try to get him some reps at the four, but just to see what he could do defensively in those spots, because I mean, it is, the cupboard is thin in this regard to be yeah. able to guard these guys for the rest of the year. And now you don't have Chris Duarte. So, I mean, they bumped O'Shea up to the three. And like I said, he wasn't able to stick with Anthony Edwards off the dribble any better. So like somebody asked, um, this was a question. Obviously it's been two games, young guys, new lineups, no Turner, but defense has been optional. Is there hope for a Hallie Duarte backcourt to be anything but a sieve on the perimeter or will it just have to be funneling everything to Turner and Ajax? Oh, I think that they can be solid. Um, like I, especially too with with Tyrese, like I think it'll look better once he has more time. And I think once, uh, what is the way to put it? Once the team overall, um, you know, once their defense is more together, once they're healthier. Um, but like, I think he's really active off the ball and he times his uh his digs really well like he had a play i think it was on karis in the it might have been in the it was either in the third quarter or the fourth quarter against the Cavs. he had a dig where he came over and timed it perfectly and ended up having it be a steal like i think he's really good with late contests and coming over but yeah on the ball he is like he's a guy who's going to get hunted on the ball until he gets stronger right now and i think we've seen that throughout the last year and a half already and seen it in the first two games with the pacers like he's not awesome on the ball especially just given his size but I do think he will be impactful off the ball, or at least trying it to neutral. And I think we'll see more of like, like Chris guarding the 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 more saying the more primary guards the wrong way to put it. But like I think he'll he'll probably guard more of the downhill threats. At least it seems like it, it'll be matchup dependent, I guess. But I mean that's what they were doing early in the season. But I mean part of it goes to because they have the issues with point of attack defense, I think that's contributing to why they're doing as much switching as they're doing, Mm -hmm. but they aren't great at doing it. And then once this, once they're done switching and they're straight up, then they're having trouble guarding somewhat in isolation with various guys. So um, I don't think the execution of the switches has been great. And I think it's somewhat an outdated concept to talk about base schemes because of what, a lot of NBA teams are doing in terms of trying to show, especially high level scores, lots of different looks in a game. But I do think at a certain point in time, they're going to have to try to decide what they want their identity on that end of the floor yeah. to be. It seems like they, they want it to be switching because that's what they continue to keep doing. And like the idea right now of funneling stuff to IJAX, I'm not really seeing. Um, not that it can't get to a point where he's a more you know, defined rim protector and, and ability to do that. I just think that there's a definite reason why they're having him switch and play zone right now. Yeah. I don't think he's ready to be executing aggressive drop coverage or deep drop coverage and knowing where he needs to be positionally in that sense and what angles he needs to be at with his body. So I think that's a little bit of a ways of ways yet. And that's, you know, perfectly fine. Isaiah is very young. He hasn't played that many games at the NBA level. And unfortunately for him, he keeps having, 
nagging injuries where he gets a few games, you know, a rep here, a rep there, and then he's back out. So um, that's part of it. I would, I'll reserve judgment until, you know, if Brogdon and TJ Warren are going to be on this team and they're going to play at some point this season, if I can see them switch with, with Duarte and Halliburton and miles is out there, you know, maybe it does look a lot better. I mean, those are just positional upgrades to be quite frank over the people that have been available. So I would expect that it would at least look somewhat better, but we do know from the beginning of the season, I mean, they didn't start out doing a lot of hedging when this season started, when most of their intended starting lineup was healthy. They, like when they played the wizards and lost in overtime, for instance, they were using drop coverage in that game and Neto and, you know, I don't even remember what other guards went off Dinwiddie that kind of lit them up. It, they were in drop and then they ended up having to play zone at that end of the game to give a different look or, you know, in the Houston game when Sabonis didn't even play, they gave up multiple 30 point quarters until Rick Carlisle was like, okay, in the fourth quarter, we're going to just sit in a zone, even though they're hitting a bunch of threes and hope that just the different type of defense is going to make them think and do something different, which that was a good gamble and it worked out. But like, We've seen that the defense hasn't held up. I think that there have been bright spots where they've made smart um, in-game adjustments at times, but the defense as a whole, I think, just is going to need a lot of work, and I'm not sure that we're going to see a lot of progress on that this season. It feels like it's going to be something that over the summer, once they know what type of team they want to be and who's staying and who's going, that they're going to have to settle into – what exact type of identity they want to have as a defensive team. Because right now, like what we saw these last two games, like just to put it kindly, and I don't know that we shouldn't necessarily expected more when guys are coming in from different teams and, you know, they've traded out five or six players who aren't used to being here that you should expect there to be a lot of chemistry and people defending on a string. But I mean, it was, it was largely a mess in that Minnesota game. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, no, it was very bad. Like there was, there's not a lot of good there. And I think like you were mentioning about Ajax too. I know uh, like he's capable of blocking shots for sure, but to call him a rim protector right now would be just kind of not fair. Uh, I don't think he's at that point. He has a lot to learn as a big man, especially like, you know, hand activity, things like that. That, I mean, and to be fair too, like, I think I'm at the point now where I feel like that's one of the things that it seems takes longest to develop in the NBA, like becoming a guy who can be a very qualified defender at the five. Like it's just gotten a lot harder to do considering like, even like we're talking about with coverage versatility, I think there's a lot you have to pick up on to get better at it. But yeah, I'm, I'm there with you. I'm, I think that they have the outline to like, they have intriguing guys for what they could do, but I mean, yeah, I, I think the better way to put it too, even when talking about can the, can that backcourt work together? I think if you have somebody at the three who can really solidify things at the point of attack, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll consider that defensively. But right now, yeah, if 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 there's not a better point of attack defender than Chris Duarte, I think that's problematic because ideally, like, I mean, he's at his best when he can roam off ball and, and be impactful and and create some havoc in passing lanes and, and around the rim too. Well, yeah, and the other thing with Isaiah Jackson, too, is he's he's going to have to get stronger. I yeah. mean, we saw that in addition to just some of the youthful indiscretions like leaving his feet um, against more imposing post threats, that's going to have to come as well. And again, that's not something that shouldn't be expected. It's just that like thinking that he's just going to step out there and be able to do stuff that Miles can do, I don't really think is is fair to him at the current juncture of his career. Um, even if he is fully healthy down the stretch. But um, I do think he has done 
a lot of really good things on that end of the floor and his tools are very tantalizing and impressive. I just don't think that the expectation for that should be there for the rest of this season, probably. But um, I'm trying to think if there was any other prominent questions that were asked um, that we might want to touch on. I mean, I, I think that one fun one, well, I don't know how fun it is, but somebody did ask, like, how will you essentially look back at what this post-Paul George era was now that Victor and Sabonis have both moved on to other teams? Like, what is your enduring memory or what are going to be some of your favorite memories of these last several seasons? Jeez, that is a loaded question. Um, I think people are going to look upon this too unkindly, in my opinion. Um, like... And I don't mean to like just try and keep everybody's discourse in check. You're allowed to think whatever you want to yeah. think. But um, to me, like, I don't know. I, considering how disappointing 14-15 was, because there was nothing that, that you could do about that. That whole team was built around Paul. Um, and they fell apart around that. And then I think, obviously, you know, the way that that year went, how some of the weirdness with how things went with Frank Vogel and and just the way that Larry Bird handled that thing, that whole thing too. And that ended up being what what – that's miles to the team and everything just gets dysfunctional from there um, into, you know, then the trade happens. And I think that team was picked to win 32 games that season, if I remember correctly. Um, and just to have that year was like, I mean, that was tremendous. I know, I think, you know, in, in retrospect, a lot of people are going to say, well, I wish they just rebuilt. And I think there's credence to that. Like I would get that, you know, I think maybe it would have made more sense for the team to bottom out. Um, if they were going to do it at that time. Uh, but at the same time, I just loved watching that team. Like that was one of the reasons I really fell in love with basketball. Like that was one of the first seasons that, I mean, obviously the 13, 14 team was like the team for me, but 17, 18 was like the team that just furthered how I felt about the game, getting to watch that team. And then the next year too, like there was the game again, it, it, you know, like they, they won on the stretch after Victor went down when Bojan was just, like absolutely nuts from the field and their, their defense was playing incredibly well. And yeah, they got smacked in the postseason, but I think that should have been expected to a degree, but it was just a fun group. And I know it wasn't perfect. Like 48 wins isn't, isn't sexy or anything. And again, I think that there's real reasons to have wanted to blow that up. And um, I think I would have made the case like, you know, maybe after, after like the 1920 season is definitely when it should have blown up, but um I think I'll look back on it in terms of uh, some really enjoyable teams and personalities. And it just didn't work out for a lot of reasons and injuries definitely played a big part in it. It lasted too long, but I don't think you can fault it for happening. Yeah. I mean, I think that mostly I'll look back at the last several years and think, you know, what if yeah. for reasons, both good and bad, um, you know, what if like, I think it, it seemed like over the last month or so, and again, it's not me trying to check the discourse. Like we really don't know the answers to these questions to be frank, but like there seemed to be a lot of wanting to relitigate that trade and talk about how lucky the front office got with Sabonis and Victor. And I think that there's luck involved in any of this with sports, whether you're drafting guys with picks or you're going to go out and get somebody like, you know, I mean, I think the Tyrese Halliburton one was pretty straightforward. If you can get a guy of that caliber in the second year of his contract, I think you pretty much always do it. But um, with, with Victor and Sabonis, I think that there also had to be some vision there. And there was also, 
you know, a lot of talk that summer about how much work Victor was putting in to, to really yeah. reshape and remold his body and match agility with what his our skills to the agility that he already possessed. So to see that, you know, what they were and if they put them in slightly different positions with the Pacers and had the ball in their hands, what they might be able to become. And those things did come to fruition. Do I think they expected Victor to become an all NBA caliber player and defender in the first year he was here? Probably not, but um, he showed some regression in that next season early on in the going before he started dealing with the knee soreness. I don't think it was incredibly pronounced because we don't know how much the initial 11 game absence was bothering him, but I will long wonder what would have happened if, you know, his knee basically doesn't come apart and that, you know, he never really got to fully play with the version of Sabonis that just got traded. That didn't fully come into being until he was, you know, put into the starting lineup and really allowed to have more touches. And I think what I appreciated most over this back season or came to appreciate of Victor once he was gone, wasn't just all that he offered as a help defender and the way that he covered up a lot of mistakes. Cause like, I I think that Dan Burke is very good at coaching defense. Like I'm not going to take that away from him. And, but the difference of going from Victor to Karis LeVert showed up in so many different types of ways and stuff that he covered up from, but also offensively how well Victor and Sabonis actually probably would have fit together if they both, um, were regularly starting and had time to continue to mesh because of how quick um, Victor was rising up. Like if Sabonis would have been drawing to what Victor could have done with that degree of space with him drawing those extra bodies. And if his shot had continued to um, remain somewhat stable, in addition to then wondering what would have happened if you could have paired both of them with TJ Warren, the bubble version of him at the four, Um, just a lot of missed opportunities in that regard. And then also just looking back and wondering, you know, what would have happened if, you know, they don't hire Nate Bjorkman and they would have hired Chris Finch? Does that lead you down this same exact path with, you know, Rick Carlisle and then Tyrese Halliburton, or even looking back at last year with, you know, how close it seemed like stuff got with Gordon Hayward and how different that might've shaped various things. And I'm not saying they should have taken those different paths, just um, questioning, you know, how different things could have been, but I don't, I don't think we'll ever fully know what, how good that team could have been, but, I understood. I always understood the vision beyond behind it and how it was assembled and the way that it was built with the various players that they had. And I think it could have been more than what we ended up seeing, ended up seeing, which I think most people are kind of going to remember this for being, you know, the conversation about the tough out and that, you know, they never got out of the first round and, and a lot of respects, it wasn't necessarily staying on the treadmill of mediocrity. It was a feat of engineering that they were remaining as competitive as they were given what they were up against in some of those seasons and that they continued to tinker around it. And I do agree with you. Um, There was probably several cases where, you know, it did go on too long. We saw it long enough where it definitely felt stale to begin this season and the season started tough before it even started, but um, you can't go back and undo that. And hopefully they get a lot of years out of Tyrese Halliburton as a franchise point guard, but I won't look back at it all negatively. I'll more so look back and just, um, question how much higher maybe that team could have got or how competitive they could have been in the playoffs if things would have gone differently. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. Well, Caitlin, I feel like that is a a good point to leave off. I was not expecting to talk about the entire era like that, but uh, (laughs) I think that was a a good Well, you can thank Kyle Kyle Taylor on Twitter for that question. (laughs) Well, thank you for that, Kyle. Is there anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here? No, I think we're good for this month's weekly summit, seeing as how we really only had two games to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have a lot more to look at in the future. 
Well, Caitlin, this was great. To everyone listening, thank you for listening. If you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. Shoot us any questions, comments, uh, ideas, thoughts on, on Twitter or in the IC uh, comment section. And most importantly, just have a good rest of your day. And thank you for listening.